This morning we are returning to the subject of loving Christ, loving Christ more. And what began as a single sermon with three points has become a three-sermon series. But that's rather typical for the way it's gone over the years. So why change here at the end? But my original intention was to share exhortations which I believe to be vital for your spiritual health and growth. I had hoped to give four exhortations, one for each Sunday in January. Well, obviously, that plan had to be scrapped in order to cover this one single point. But I I don't regret that because I can't imagine anything more important that I could say to you than that you should aspire to love Christ more each and every day of your life for however many days you have left. Nothing could be more important than that. Christianity is large. It's multifaceted truth. And that's how we should think of Christianity. It's it's not a religion, it's truth. It's very large, it has many parts. There's a great deal to learn. And there's a great deal to do. The Bible is indeed a big book. But if you think of Christianity as a philosophy that needs to be studied, or a history that needs to be revered, or dogma that needs to be mastered and memorized, or morality that needs to be practiced. If that's how you think of Christianity in any of those categories or all of those categories, my dear friend, you have missed it. None of those ideas capture what Christianity is. Christianity, above everything else, is a person. A person that you must know, that you must trust, that you must love. A person that you must study. A person that you must obey. A person that you must worship. The whole of history leads to Jesus Christ. All Christian dogma ultimately is about Christ. The morality of Christianity comes about in listening to Christ, imitating Christ, and joyfully obeying Christ. 
And the ultimate objective of Christianity is to be like Christ and with Christ now and forevermore. So there really is no more important practical exhortation that I could give you than that you should devote your life to increasing in your love for Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we come to the final question in the study, the question of how, how. We've discussed why increasing love for Christ is so important. We've discussed what love for Christ is. And now we come to the all-important question of how. How do you do it? How do you go about loving Christ more and more and more until you're finally in his presence. When I began preparing, I had six answers for that question. You know what that would mean? (laughs) Yeah, probably six sermons, right? I've pared it down. I've decided to give you two. It's hard to remember six, hard to remember four, For some of us, hard to remember two, but maybe you can remember two. First, if you would love Christ more and more and more, you must ask. You must ask Christ to give you more love for himself. I very much hope that this study has resonated with you who have been here to hear it. I hope it has been self-evident to you that this is important, that it does, it does reach into the very core of what Christianity is. Every regenerate heart, I think, wants to love Christ and to love him more. So I, 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 I hope you have responded positively to this theme. But beloved, there's a great deal of difference between desire and ability. Desiring to do something good, Christ-honoring, well, that's good. That's, that's the way it ought to be. We ought to have large desires, but the ability to actually do it. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And I am going to ask you to turn to a few texts. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul says, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, As a natural man, nothing good dwells. For to will, and he's talking now as a regenerate man, a converted man, for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, 
I do not find. That describes one of the Christian's greatest frustrations and burdens. We're unable to do what our new regenerate hearts yearn to do. At least to do it the way we want to do it. We're unable to do the good that we would completely so that we do only good and never do wrong. We want to do good all the time to the exclusion of the bad. And we can't. Doing what is good is a struggle. Doing what is right is hard. And we never do it perfectly, and we never do it completely, and we never do it all the time. And so if we are to love Jesus Christ more, which in many respects is the highest good, we're going to have to have help. We're going to have to ask him. So that is my first directive in seeking to answer the question of how do I love Christ more, my first word to you is that you must pray. You must ask the Lord Jesus himself to supply the spiritual power and energy, the grace to enable you to love him more. Now, that's a bit embarrassing I hope you wouldn't feel too comfortable going to your wife and saying, Honey, I really want to love you more, but you're going to have to help me. I don't think I can do it if you don't help me. I hope you'd be embarrassed to say that to her. It's embarrassing to go to the Lord of glory and say, Lord, I really want to love you more, but I can't. I just... Could you help me? That's what you have to do. And a good model for this kind of praying is found in the 119th Psalm and the 36th verse. Psalm 119, 36 reads as follows. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Incline my heart. The New International Version reads, Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Incline my heart, Lord. Turn my heart. Literally, the word means bend my heart. Bend my heart. We need for Christ to exercise his grace and power, to turn us, to bend our hearts away from perishing things to which we are naturally drawn and toward himself, the one who is our life, who is our destiny. And beloved Christ can do that. He can turn our hearts And here's what I mean by that. Jesus Christ can make what we believe, what we see, 
only with the eyes of faith, Christ can make what we see by faith more compelling to us than what we see with our natural eyes. And we'll never love him as we should until he does that. Because we don't see him. We apprehend him only by believing. And yet, as Peter said, yet by faith, We love you and enjoy you with joy that is inexplainable. We need Christ to turn our hearts, incline our hearts toward himself. Make our eyes of faith clear. Make himself glorious and compelling. One of my favorite commentators was a man named Leon Morris. I believe he died this past year. Now, I found this quote by Dr. Morris. He said, it is consistent New Testament teaching that we're not able to serve God acceptably in our own strength. All too easily we give way to stronger forces or simply succumb to what we see as desirable in the temptations we encounter along the way. Now that's a profound statement, okay? So kind of shake the cobwebs out and listen to this. Carefully, All too easily, we give way to stronger forces or simply succumb to what we see as desirable in the temptations we encounter along the way. To walk in the ways of God, we need a strength not our own. And Paul prays that his converts may know that strength. What he said there is so... It's so descriptive of what happens in my heart so much of the time. I set out with the highest intentions. I'm going to commune with God. I'm going to pray fervently without distraction. And then something pops into my thoughts. Something of this world. And and there's something in this worldly thing, maybe not an evil thing, just a temporal thing that catches my fancy. It seems attractive. And I go off chasing it in my imagination and I leave Christ and prayer behind. We're so easily taken by what we think is desirable in this perishing world. And we take our eyes and our hearts off the imperishable, what will last for all eternity. So, beloved, we need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray for each other. Lord, bend our hearts toward yourself. In Jude 21, we have this very clear directive. Keep yourselves in 
the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now that can't mean make sure that God continues to love you. Can't mean that. It has to mean make sure that you keep loving God. And we can't do that without a Savior. We can't love Christ without Christ. We can't love him more without more of his grace. So the question is, how do we keep increasing in the love of Christ? And the first part of the answer is that we must pray and ask him, trust him to enable us to do it. The second and last part of my answer is this. How do we go day to day loving Christ more? And my second answer is this. Seek, seek to learn to know as much as you can about God's love for you. How do you warm your heart toward loving God more? Learn, know, remember as much as you possibly can about God's love for you. I'm confident that most of you are familiar with 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. The ESV, the NIV reads, we love because he first loved us. I like the New King James better. We love him because he first loved us. Cause and effect. We do love him, but that's the effect of him loving us first. You see, we don't initiate anything that's spiritually good. We initiate sin. But if it's good, if it's right, it doesn't originate with us. All true good begins and ends with God. And so it is with our love for God. Our love toward God Our love toward Christ commences with his love for us. So, makes sense. If our love for him originates in his love for us, it makes sense that if we're to increase in our love for Christ, we should seek to know as much as we can about his love for us, to become as familiar as convinced as we possibly can that he loves us. We need to study the love of God. The father of lies has succeeded in so cheapening the doctrine of God's love 
that many Christians never conceived of actually doing a study in the love of God. And one of the ways <clears throat> that Satan has cheapened our view of God's love is by trite, mind-numbing cliches like smile. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There's nothing there to be studied. You just accept that and you run with it. Beloved, the love of God is like God himself. It's high, it's majestic, it's holy. The love of God is a mystery that reaches back into eternity past and forward into eternity future. God did not begin loving. God's love is eternal. His love is not indiscriminate. It's personal. He loves individuals. It's particular. His love is effectual unto salvation. His love is strong. It's unrelenting in its care for his people. God's love is rooted in himself, his nature. He is altogether good and he is altogether sovereign. And God's love grows out of his eternal goodness and sovereignty. His love is not in any way founded upon anything that we are or anything that we do. He loves because he will love. Not because the objects of his love are great, good, beautiful, inspiring. God loves because he chooses to love. And his love never fails. All whom he loves, he redeemed by his son on the cross. All whom he loves will be taken by him safely to glory. Absolutely none of them will perish. None will be lost. God's love will not be frustrated and it will not be disappointed. God will not moan throughout eternity. I wish I could have convinced so-and-so to come. All the objects of his redemptive love will be gathered around him, a number too great for us to calculate, but he knows them. He knows the number of the hair on your head. He knows all of those upon whom he has set his love, for whom he sent his son to come live and die and live again. He knows them, and he's going to know where they are in eternity, and he's going to look and be satisfied by the travail of his son's soul. Nothing could be greater, nothing more wonderful, nothing more astounding 
and to be loved by God. How much careful thought do you give to God's great and wonderful love? Here's what's particularly exciting. God wants us to know about his love. God doesn't object. God is is all for you prying into his love. Digging around, trying to understand as much as you can. Go back in your Bibles to the text that David read in the opening of worship. Ephesians chapter 3. The Bible's full of wonderful text, right? Mind-blowing text. Well, this... (laughs) This is one of the greatest, most challenging texts in all the Bible. Do we have any English majors in the house? Give you a little challenge. Verses 14 through 19 comprise one sentence. Figure it out. Diagram this sentence. And and when you've done it, I'd like to see it. Look at verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. That's an exceptional statement. The ordinary posture for prayer was standing upright with hands raised. That was ordinary posture for prayer. When he said, I bow my knees, he was talking about an exceptional prayer that he was praying. Like Jesus praying in the garden. Exceptional prayers involve getting on one's face before God. Paul said, I bow my knees To the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And this is what I ask, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. Which is another way of saying that Christ may dwell powerfully in your hearts through faith. And what's so great about that? So that you may be able, so that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. And that dimensional description is, I believe, a reference to the love of Christ, that you may be able to comprehend the width, length, depth, and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. And what will that do? 
if I'm able to learn more about this love, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays that all of God's children might be so strengthened in faith as to comprehend the dimensions, the vastness, width, length, depth, height of God's love in Christ. Even though it's a love that passes knowledge, we can never understand it fully. It's a love that passes knowledge. And yet Paul prays that we, in our communion together, might comprehend as much as possible of God's love. Now surely that means we should give thought to God's love. can't comprehend something you don't think about. We should devote humble, prayerful thought to the subject of God's love, prayerfully. Humbly, we ought to study the scriptures, asking God to teach us about his love. Verse 18, Paul's prayer, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints. That's not a throwaway expression. This endeavor to learn the love of God is an endeavor that we are to participate in with each other. It is a learning that is to involve communion. It's all the saints participating in this effort to know the vastness of God's love. This comprehension of God's love requires that we work at it together. That we do it in fellowship with each other. We have privatized so much of Christianity. It's just me and God. Just me and Christ. Beloved, it was never designed to be just you. Striving, just you going to heaven. It is a plan of God that we would go together, that we would help each other. As we observe what God's love is doing, not just in our lives, but in the lives of our brethren as we talk together about what God's love is doing for us, how God is bearing us up and giving us opportunities and answering prayers, giving us burdens and then taking them upon himself, as we communicate with each other about our own experience of God's love, the vastness of his love becomes even more obvious. Testimony, like what was done here on Wednesday evening. Testimony is a valuable aid 
to learning about God's love. And it's in this way that we come to be filled with the fullness of God. You say, well, pastor, what's that? I don't know. But I'm sure of this. Whatever else it means to be filled with the fullness of God, it means that we will be filled with love. Our experience is rooted and grounded in love. Our growth is in the knowledge of God's love. And the result is that we come to be filled with love. Nothing is sadder, more disappointing, more hurtful than to see brotherly love fail. And the devil's always trying to do that. He's always working to try to get us not to love God, not to love Christ, not to love each other. And when he succeeds, it's heartbreaking. It's discouraging. Beloved, we have a responsibility to help each other, show each other the power of the love of God in the way we love God and in the way we love each other. There's another text that I want you to consider in this regard. It's found in Romans chapter 5, if you would. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Familiar text. Romans 5 verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps, perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now back in Ephesians 3, Paul summons us to engage in thought, prayerful thought and observation together in an effort to gain a growing comprehension of God's love. But here he teaches us that our confident expectation of heaven, our hope, is supported by an experience of God's love. Not a theological knowledge of God's love, an experience. Look at the words, the love of God has been poured out In our hearts, 
by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The Greek word translated has been poured or has been poured out it's the same word that Peter used on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.33, to describe what Christ had done in pouring out the Holy Spirit. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit brought experiences. The people of God experienced the Holy Spirit. And their timidity and fear was banished. And they became courageous and they marched out the doors of their upper room. They went into the streets of Jerusalem and they preached Christ, not fearing the consequences. And even more, they were able to preach the gospel in languages they had never learned. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit created experiences and the people in the streets of Jerusalem, they witnessed, they had an experience as well. The pouring out resulted in experience. And I am firmly convinced of what Paul is saying in Romans 5 when he talks about the love of God being poured out into our hearts. He's talking about an experience of God's love. Not just an idea, not just a theory, an experience of God's love. Christ gives the Holy Spirit to every believer. The giving of the Holy Spirit is a once-for-all act. And part of what the Holy Spirit does, not just once, but repeatedly, is to cause us to have an inward experience of being loved by God. What do I mean by an inward experience? I mean a feeling. I mean that we are enabled to feel God's love for us. It's a felt reality. Christianity is not all words. It's not all theology. There are felt realities in being a Christian. And one of them is the work of the Spirit of God causing us to feel the love of God in our souls. Now, how does he do that? Does the feeling just come out of the clear blue like a A bolt of lightning? Well, look at what Paul says in Romans 5. He goes on from verse 5 and he says 4. And that's an indication. He's going to explain what he's just said. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet. Perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But notice, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now what's the connection between this experience of God's love and the demonstration of God's love in the death of Christ? Well, I I believe Paul is telling us how the Holy Spirit gives us this felt recognition of the love of God. It comes in connection with the cross. It comes in connection with a contemplation of the death of Jesus on the cross. As we think seriously and biblically about what that death involved, who it was who died, why he died, he died to take our place and suffer the wrath that we had earned. When we think about what it accomplished, he took all of our debt, paid for all of our sin, absorbed all of our punishment. It's in the contemplation of the death of Christ that the Holy Spirit comes and by an inward mysterious witness with our spirit says, Son, that was for you. That was for you. I sent my Son to do that for you. Because I love you. I love you. Remember the gospel account of a Pharisee who had a semi-formal dinner for Jesus in his house. All these dignitaries were there. It It was a proper occasion. And then this prostitute we, we call these people, and we shouldn't. We call them sluts. We shouldn't. They're image bearers of God. But this, this prostitute came in. And she, didn't give, she didn't give any acknowledgement to the, the Pharisee or his friends. She went to Jesus. He was reclined as... That was the posture for eating in those days. He had his arm up like this. His legs were extended behind him. She came up behind him and she bathed his dirty feet with her tears. And then she wiped them dry with the hair of her head. And the Pharisees said, Jesus, he's no prophet. If he was a prophet, he would know who this woman is. He wouldn't let her touch him. And then Christ told the story, and then he gave the interpretation. And the interpretation was this. The one who is forgiven much loves much. The Spirit of God draws us back again and again and again to the cross. The cross is finished. Hallelujah. 
But it was at the cross that our souls were redeemed. And it's the will of Christ that we should never forget the cross. That's why we have the communion service. And the Spirit of God draws us back again and again and again to the cross. And as we contemplate the cross, the Spirit bears witness. He gives us an inward testimony of God's love for us. The love of Christ, beloved, is more than a theological idea. It's an experiential reality. That's true of all love, right? Would you be would you be satisfied if your spouse said, theoretically, I love you. Now, I, I'm not going to hug you. I'm not going to kiss you. I, I'm just not touchy-feely. But I want you to know, theoretically, I love you. Would that be satisfying? No, we know that love by its very nature is experimental. There's hugs, there's touching, there's kissing, there's embracing, there's giving of gifts. And so it is with the love of God. It is experiential and it comes by the Holy Spirit. And it's as we experience God's love that we're able to respond by loving him more. There was another text, and I'll just give it to you, and you can look it up. It's, it's a very important text. It's 1 John 4.16. Let me read it. We have known and believed. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. And he who abides in love abides in God. Romans 5, Paul's talking about the experience. In 1 John 4, John is talking about believing in the love of Christ. I suspect that some of you are like me. I draw back from thinking that God loves me. That's a terrible thing to hear your pastor say, but I have to be honest. I can understand God loving you and you and you. But him loving me, I, I honestly, I feel that's too sacred. And I don't go there in my mind very often because I know how wretchedly I have failed him, how often I still fail him, and it's embarrassing to think that he loves me. But I cling to the cross. Jesus is all my hope, and I hope God loves me. Now, that's wrong. I I need to preach to myself what I'm preaching to you. And even when we don't feel God's love, 
We must believe it. John said, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Well, how can you believe that? How can can we believe that God loves us when we are so wretched? In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sin. And that's the only way that people like me can believe that God loves me is by thinking about the satisfaction that Jesus made for sinners on the cross. Well, how do you know it's for you, Pastor? Because he gave me grace to believe. Has he given you grace to believe? Can you say, I don't know if he loves me. It's, it's so hard for me to comprehend that he would love me. Okay, let's change the conversation. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is your only hope with God? Do you believe he was the son of God? He is the son of God who became man, who lived in your place, died in your place, was resurrected for your justification. Do you believe that he did those things and everyone who believes in him will be saved by what he did? Do you believe that? So yes, yes, that's that's my hope. That's all my hope. It's it's Jesus. Where where did you get the faith to believe? Not everybody has faith. Where did you get it? He gave it to you. Why did he give it to you? Why did he give you faith? Because he loved you. Because he loved you. You can read God's love by faith in the cross and in the ability to trust in the cross. But as for more, as for that experience that the Holy Spirit gives in pouring out God's love in our souls. And for some of you, this this is strange taught. You have never thought of loving God. You've never cared whether he loves you or not. Well, I tell you this, if God doesn't love you, you don't have a chance. You'll perish forever. So what can I do about that? Well, I'll tell you a secret. The love of God is stored up in Jesus Christ. It's stored up in Christ. And if you will go to Christ, and you will ask Christ to make himself real to you, to incline your heart to him, if you will ask him to give you the grace to repent of your sins and believe on him, he will do that, and in the doing of that, you will experience the love of God. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. In many ways, Father, it's, it's an audacious thing that people like us would meet together in a room and talk about you loving us. Who among us is worthy of being loved by you? But dear Father, we have this conversation and we have it with boldness because you have told us of your love in the Bible and you have demonstrated your love in giving your son to die for people just like us. And you've given many of us the faith to believe in him, which is the proof that he died for us and he died for us because you love us. And so, Father, though we are not worthy, we do not deserve your love, yet we humbly ask that you would make your love for us more real, more felt, more to be believed, trusted than ever before. And we ask that not primarily for our comfort, but we ask that so that the knowledge of your love for us would stimulate in us a greater love for you. Help us to love you more. Help us to love each other in ways that will stimulate greater love for Christ. We pray for his glory, for our good. Amen.